You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. We're going to continue our series here in Paul's letter to a church in Ephesus, and we're going to find ourselves in the second half of chapter 3 in this letter. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead, flip over uh, to the New Testament, and you'll find Paul's letter, Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to be going through verse 14 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, they're right in the pew backs behind you, and that is our gift to you. You can take that with you. You will not be breaking one of the Ten Commandments if you take that with you. So let's hear these words of the Lord's servant, the Apostle Paul. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the great power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Let the church say amen. This is the word of the Lord. Can we say thanks be to God? Pray with me one more time with you. Father in heaven, We thank you that we get to come to you in prayer, that we get to pray with one another, I with the church and the church with me, this very prayer. We don't get to just pray this prayer. We get to study this prayer. Father, I pray that this prayer will be answered right now in this service. That we would know, we would leave here knowing a love that surpass our knowing. Oh, what a thought. A love that surpasses knowledge. Reveal your love here today. May your power, your grace-filled power, be manifested in my weakness as I attempt to preach the glories of this passage, the glories of your love. It's in Christ Jesus We ask all these things, and the church says, amen. You could be seated. Like we said uh, several weeks back, one of the greatest ways you can discover a Christian's priorities is to listen to the content of their prayers. You can discover their priorities, their fears, their ambitions, 
I mean, I want you to think, maybe just the last couple days, maybe the last week, what was the content of your prayers? What did you pray for? Who did you pray for? So what prayer does, it reveals the soul's longings. What prayer does, it it reveals the deep river of desires that flow through our hearts. And if we have been a people, a brand new family, purchased with the blood of Christ, this diverse community with one commonality that is the blood of Jesus, what should we now be praying for as a church? What should we be asking the Lord to do within our midst, in us, through us, and around us? With the Apostle Paul, for now, the second time, he interrupts his theology with some doxology. He interrupts his propositions about Jesus with now praise and prayer to the Trinitarian God. He prays to the Father through the power of the Spirit in the love of Christ Jesus. And that is what Paul is asking the Father of all mercies, the Father of all families. We won't be distracted by that loud noise. And there it goes. He's praying that the Father would build the church up in love so that we'd be filled with God so that we can walk in love. That's our main point for today. We'd be built up in love, so filled with God that we would now walk in love. We're going to follow along with this prayer with the Apostle Paul as he gives us three hooks to hang his prayer upon. And these hooks should be in the notes before you, but if you don't have them, let me just tell them to you. Paul prays for, first point, a glory that strengthens us. Second, he prays for a love that transforms us. And third, he prays to a God that does more than us. Glory that strengthens us, a love that transforms us, and prays to a God that does more than us. You guys ready to dive in? First point, a glory that strengthens us. Paul's interrupting this train of thought. Right? He said back in verse 1, for this reason, and then he interrupted it with some theological reflections about Christ and the church, and now he comes back to it and says, for this reason. What's the reason? Paul is not naive that all the way through chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's not naive to the reality that relationships are difficult. Can I get an amen? They're difficult. especially within a church community that you don't get to choose, that the Father chooses. He knows that to love one another will take a type of strength that's not found naturally within us, but has to come from outside of us. He says, the basis of my prayer is the knowledge of God's purpose and plan for his church. What was his plan? 
It's a unity to make known to the world, even the rulers and the principalities in the heavenly places, to make known that love of God revealed in Christ Jesus. He says it's for this reason, verse 14, follow along. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Do you know how Jewish folk pray? They stand. Paul is throwing away all tradition. Paul is throwing away all religious posturing. And he's getting down on his knees in a posture of neediness. In a posture of, I have No control over this. I need you, Spirit of God, to do what I cannot do while I'm imprisoned under house arrest in Rome for this church in the port city of Ephesus. Only you can bring them together to have this unifying love. And he's praying like Jesus. He says, our Father. It's God our Father who inclines his ear to us. Psalm 66. It's God, our Father, who works his grace-filled power in the midst of our weaknesses. Anybody weak here this morning? Just me and a few others. It's our Father who carries out his purposes and plan for the good of those who love them. You know what good is? It's conformity to Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 28. It's our Father, Paul prays, from whom the whole family in heaven on earth is named. Now, I know in your translation you see every family, but I'm going to translate this word from the Greek, every. It's, it's pasa in the Greek, like the New International Version 1984 translates it, or the Authorized Version, or our buddy John Piper translates it. Pasa is the same word if you just scroll up And you look at the word whole structure. We're being built together into not every structure. That wouldn't make sense. But he says whole structure, pasa structure. It's the same word here, pasa, family, whole family. Seeing every family in heaven on earth is named because we have one father who's not just my father. He's not just your father. He's our Father, like Jesus taught us to pray. We're one whole family. But the same Father. And it's this family that's been growing and multiplying since the beginning. Who is this family in heaven? It's those Old Testament saints that have trusted in the Messiah before the Messiah was revealed. And also those current saints, Christians, who've trusted in the Messiah and who are now dead and are in paradise with Christ. The whole family in heaven, but he doesn't stop there. What does he say? Where else? On earth. Who is he talking about? The church. The church. The church in EPH, Ephesus and the church in PGH, Pittsburgh. We are adopted. We are of the same familial household. Remember when Pastor Luke preached on all these different identities that we were? We were citizens, right? 
It's one thing to say that we are citizens of the same kingdom because we can just live around each other. We don't actually have to live with each other. But it's a whole other thing to say we're family. Same household. Same father. See, family takes priority. Family annoys one another. No amens? Thank you. We annoy one another. I know I annoy you. But we don't give up on each other. Family doesn't give up. Family is there during the best of times. Family is especially there during the worst of times. Do we as a church family represent fatherly love? Heavenly Father. That's what Paul's pointing at here. Let me just talk to the parents in the room right now. Parents, do your children see you representing this type of commitment to Christ in the church? Or do they see you representing their priorities and their practice schedules over the church and Christ's priorities? Sisters, brothers, if you're married or single, do your friends, your neighbors see you representing the Father's priorities, the priorities that are not optional in the Christian life, like gathering on Sundays? Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake the gathering. Do they see you representing the priority to love and disciple one another so that when others see us, they know we are Jesus's disciples. It's just the baseline. Do they see those priorities? Are we representing our Father's priorities? It's the reason Paul is praying. See, what Paul is praying for whether the church is gathered on Sundays or the church is scattered during the week is that we would make known what's been shown to us. Love. Love. But how will this happen? How? Here's the good news. It's not according to you. What does Paul say? He says, according to the riches of glory, he will strengthen us from within. God the Father will strengthen us through his spirit, verse 16, right? Strengthen us by his spirit. And elsewhere, he prays the same prayer. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the, say it, Spirit. Paul is saying, by the Spirit, what you behold is what you become. What you behold is what you become. If you behold God's glory, you'll be transformed into his glory. If you behold his love, you'll be transformed and strengthened by his love. 
If God grants Paul's prayers to be answered, it will not be according to you or to me. It'll be according to his grace that's at work with us by the power of the Spirit. What a gift. What are the riches of this glory? If you look at the rest of this prayer, it'll tell you what the riches of this glory are not. Riches are not health. It's not a relationship status. It's not a job. It's not even money. What is the rest of this prayer about? Christ. Riches are in Christ. This is a God-centered prayer with Christ-centered power, with spirit-filled strength. That's glory. That's riches. And pay close attention. This is not physical strength. This is not military strength. But what does he say? Inner strength. Inner strength. It's going to strengthen your inner man. You know what he's saying? That type of strength doesn't come natural to me and you. So you need to be strengthened from something on the outside that lives on the inside of you now. We need power. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Motivate us to love. How will he do that? Well, yes, it's this glory that strengthens us, but the second point, in order to be built up into this revealing love towards one another, he has to pray that we'd be filled up with God and second point, with a love that transforms. Please keep following along. In verse 17, he says, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in, can you say that? Love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and depth and to know the, say it, love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What Paul is saying, we need the third person of the Trinity to empower us in such a way that we would know that the second person of the Trinity dwells within our hearts. Now, is it true that Christ comes and takes up residence when we first trust in Christ. Absolutely. So as Paul's saying right here to people who already believe in Christ, that you need Christ to take up residence in you again, that he'll dwell in you one minute, and then when you become weak and sinful, he leaves you, so you need the Spirit now to put him back in you? Uh-uh. He's not saying that at all. Listen to what our friend Scotty Smith says from Tennessee. He says, once we become believers, Jesus comes to reside in us, in our inner being. Though there, there, there are degrees of receiving Christ, there are degrees of knowing Christ. We need power so that we can know the Christ who dwells in our hearts more. We don't need anything more than Jesus we just need more of him so that we might comprehend the vastness of his love. And he's saying if you are going to have that strength to comprehend this love, 
You first must be rooted, and you first must be grounded. If you're not rooted and you're not grounded, you will never be able to comprehend this love. Rooted. Rooted means to be planted in good soil. It's agricultural. Grounded means to have a firm foundation. It's architectural. If you do not have good soil, it doesn't matter how organic your seeds are, how filtered your water is, or how good the gardener is. The plant won't bear fruit. It's not good soil. In the same way, if you don't have a solid, firm foundation, it doesn't matter how good the building material is. It doesn't matter how good the architect is. Faulty foundation, the house will fall. If we want to grow, Renaissance Church, do you want to grow? We must be rooted in the good soil of Christ's love. If we want to see this church built, do you want to see this church built? foundation, the cornerstone, has to be the love of Christ. Jesus himself says this near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. You see what he's saying? The worst can happen to you. But if you're founded on the words of Jesus and the ways of Jesus, the love of Christ, what will happen? It did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. See, when we build our lives on the love of Christ, we'll not just be rooted. We'll not just have a solid foundation to stand upon, but we will grow. Don't hear numbers. Hear Christ-like conformity. Because that ultimate source of divine love, do you know where it is right now? It's in me. It's in you and you and you. It's in all of us. The ultimate source of divine love is a power-filled love that is inside of us. It's the sacrificial love of Christ Jesus who gave himself up for us. It's the self-other-serving love where he did not consider his own interest, but the interest of others, when he found himself on the cross dying in our stead, that is the love that's within us. The Christ who loved is now inside of us. And we cannot comprehend this love if we're not rooted in this love. Like we can know what the earth is and what the ocean is. The earth, like God's love, is too vast to explore. The ocean, like God's love, is too deep to fathom. Paul's saying Christ's love is higher than the heavens. 
It's deeper than the oceans. It's wider than the east is from the west, and it's longer than all the different universes put together. See, if love does for them what good soil does for a tree, what will happen? Grow. That chief cornerstone does for us here in Pittsburgh what a good foundation does for a builder of a house. What will happen for us? We'll be built up in love. And I love this. He says, we're going to comprehend not by yourself. He says, together with all the saints. It's comprehension is a community project. It's a community project. Paul says when we are filled with the fullness of God, it is a love that transforms us. That's what it means to be filled with Christ. We're going to look like Christ. Why? Because he has loved us first. And when we know he has loved us first, we'll then love others. We'll walk in this love, be transformed by this love. John poses this riddle before the church who stopped loving other fellow believers. He says, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see, meaning the people right in front of us, proximate to us. How can we claim to love a God who we cannot see? What Paul's saying, what Jesus is saying, what John's saying, what I'm saying, it's impossible to know this love and not be compelled to love others. That's why Paul's praying for it. See, why, why do most of us claim we know this information about Christ's love, but we never see transformation in this love? Why? I mean, some of you are sometimers on Sundays, sometimers in community groups, sometimers when it comes to serving and laying your life down for others. You claim you know about the love of Christ, but never experience transformation. How come? Because even this right now, At best, it's spiritual information for you. And when love is only information, Pastor Eric Mason in Philadelphia, he says, when it's only information and not put to application, it leads to spiritual constipation. Yeah, we laugh. But it's not that funny. You might say that's a gross analogy. Yeah. Because there's something gut-wrenching and disgusting about someone who claims to know the love of God but hates their neighbor. And some of you are in this, this spot right now. 
You are stuck. You're stuck spiritually. And when this happens, it doesn't just affect you. It affects the whole body. The people in front of you, behind you, to the right of you, to the left of you. The people who are not here this morning. And we know this when we miss people here on Sunday mornings. When we haven't seen them in a while. Doesn't it affect us? But Paul says when we know this love, Ephesians 4.1, he says, therefore, walk in this love. Ephesians 5.1, he'll say, therefore, be imitators of God and love one another. It's when we know with our hearts this spiritual information and put it to spirit-filled, empowered application, it produces a transformation that is rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. You know how it transforms us? It's because when we try to love others, we realize we can't. And we will say, I need help. Christ, I need you to work powerfully in me to perfect your love inside of me so that I can love like you love me first. When we attempt to love others, we realize we're, we're just falling forward. And what happens when we confess we don't love as well as we should have loved? That's when the Spirit of God begins to transform us by his love because he doesn't love us based on what we're able to do or what we're not able to do. He loves us based on what Jesus did for us. That's when the love begins to transform us. When we're transformed by this love, we're this brand new humanity. One new man, Paul says, who was once two enemies, Jew, Gentiles, who are at war with one another, they're now called family. How outrageous is this story? How outrageous is this grace found in Christ Jesus that he would take two completely opposite people and make them one new man in Christ Jesus. It's almost like the gospel, right? That God would look down on us who are totally not like him and choose to love us and make us like him. That's it's the gospel. Why would a lack of love within the church body, what would this have revealed about the Ephesian church to their neighbors? What does a lack of love, a sacrificial love, service love, reveal to the neighbors around us? It puts the magnifying glass on us and not Jesus. Right? It's easy to say, like, ah, I can sort of live next to you. I can be surfacely nice to you. I can be quasi-respectful of you. I can tolerate you. It's an entirely different thing to love a friend like Christ has loved his friends. To lay his life down for us. Paul Tripp, another pastor from Philadelphia, which just happens to mean brotherly love, says, God, who is love, sends his son of love to make a sacrifice of love, to release his spirit of love, so the one who died as an act of love now lives inside of us by his spirit, so we are now empowered to love. There is the gospel. 
This is what we mean when we say we want to have gospel conviction and gospel culture. So we can have Philadelphia brotherly love. Do you know this love or do you just know about this love? There's a difference. Because when you're filled with this love of God, Paul prays and he knows that he'll do far more than we can ask or imagine in us and through us. It's a glory that strengthens us, prays for a love that transforms us, and now he prays to a God that does more than us. He says, now to him, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work with us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. There is that word again. Ecclesia, church. Glory in the church. Paul is praying for not individual Christians, but the whole church to be a representation of the whole gospel and the whole love of God. And he's saying that same glory, those riches of glory that empower us, that glory will now reside in us. Do you see that in verse 21? See, all throughout the Old Testament, God regularly said, my plan is for my glory to spread across the earth just like all the waters cover the oceans of the deep. He wants his glory to spread. And now Paul is praying for that promise to become a reality. What is prayer? John Andrzejewa says this, prayer is calling on God to come through on his promises. Paul is calling on God to come through his promises by showing off God's glory through the church. Is that radical to anybody else? That he would use us, imperfect as we are, messed up as we are, weak as we are, to show off his glory? What does it mean to glory or to glorify? Paul even said back up in verse 13, do you remember this? He says, don't worry about my suffering because what I'm suffering is for, he didn't say God's glory. What did he say? Your glory. What does it mean to glory? Another word you can use is magnify. And there's two types of magnifying, right? There's a microscope, magnification, and there's telescope. What do you do with a microscope? You make something that is small seem bigger than it actually is. What does a telescope do? It makes a big thing, a magnificent thing, start to look as big as it really is. That's what it means to glory in the church. We make a big thing, the gospel, 
start to look as big as it really is. John Piper writes this, we are not called to be microscopes. We're called to be telescopes. There is nothing and nobody superior to God. And so the calling of those who love God is to make his greatness begin to look as great as it really is. He says, be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. This, church, is what it means for Renaissance to glorify God, to magnify God. But here's the deal. You cannot magnify what you do not know, and you cannot magnify what you forget about. You cannot magnify what you do for just an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday. can't become what you don't behold. I mean, most of the time, I mean, can, we, can we be real? Can I be really real? Where is the magnifying glass? I don't know about you, but it's on me. When I think about my life, where is it when you think about your life? Don't we put the magnifying glass on what you need? How you want others to love you? How different you are than everybody else? There's no one here like me. What are you doing? You're being a microscope. You're taking something that is really small and trying to make it look bigger than it actually is. And listen, some of you right now, you're so weighed down in your sin and shame that that's all you can focus on. You're taking a magnifying glass to your sin and make it look bigger than the love of Christ that runs deeper than all your sin. Why are you so stuck in the same patterns of sin and shame? It's because your focus is on your sin and not on your Savior. If that's you here today, I'm inviting you to walk in love. That there is nothing that you can do to earn God's love. He doesn't need you to stop sinning first before you can, he can love you. Because he's already loved you in Christ. But then there's others who aren't so much interested in magnifying their sin and their guilt. Just more interested in magnifying your status. To keep making you look bigger than you. Making you the thing that you want everyone around you to orbit their lives around. right here, right now through this prayer, the spirit of the living God is inviting you to put that magnifying glass down, to put away the microscope and get out the telescope and focus on something else. To focus on Christ's love for you. Right? Most of us, we are so me-oriented in our prayers. We're so me-oriented. 
that when we pray, we come up disappointed, don't we? And what is disappointment? It is the gap that spans the difference between our expectations and reality. That's what disappointment is. But what the Spirit of God wants to do right now, he wants you to distract you from you in a way that grows you to become more like you in Christ Jesus. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do right now. And this, Paul says, will blow our expectations out of the water. See, God never fails to hit his expectations. He just fails to meet ours. Meet ours, which are often lower than his expectations. Because we often want him to change the circumstance around us rather than changing what's inside of us. Our self-centered ways our self-focused ways. And he says, when you pray this way, you have the fullness of God begin to fill you that you'll get the focus off you and get the focus on Jesus. And when your focus is on the love of Christ, you'll begin to love others who look like Christ. Therefore, he says, walk in a manner worthy of this calling. He wants you to see that this motley crew, me and you, a bunch of ragamuffins with a bunch of distinctions who actually outside of the spiritual world, we have very little in common. But we have one thing in common that unites us far greater, far deeper, outweighs, outlasts, any temporary seeming unity that we might have in this world. It's something that keeps pulling on your heart, tugging us together. It's something that percolates inside of you. It's something that destroys all those walls of distinctions and divisions and hostility that exists within the church. What is it? It's not an it. It's a he. It is the third person of the Trinity. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now at work within us. And he draws us together towards this unity of love that we would not be able to have any other way. What I think the Apostle Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, he's saying, oh, sisters and brothers, don't you understand what you have been given? What I think the Apostle Paul wants to say to the church in Pittsburgh today, oh, church in Pittsburgh, do you not comprehend the great love with which God has loved you? God, in an act of glorious grace, God, in an act of glorious love, has made himself known to you in the person of work of Jesus Christ, not because you deserve it, not because you can earn it, it's simply because he loves you. He doesn't love you as you should be because none of us are as we should be. He loves you just as you are, but promises to never leave you where you are. This is the gospel. You, who are once far off, through the love of Christ has been brought near. You, who were once unlovable, have been made lovable through the love of Christ. You, who were dead in your sin and your shame, were made alive together with Christ Jesus because he dug down deeper than the tomb of your sin and your shame. Do you know that we can pray for a power for strength at work with us because Jesus was stripped of all of his power? Do you know that we have a love that transforms 
Because Christ, who is love, was transformed, was disfigured. He had a face that no one would want to look at. And do you know that in the love of Christ, the God-man Christ Jesus did much more than us on that cross. He hung from a beam of wood that was grounded in Calvary. His arms were stretched wide so he might display the, the expanse of his love for us. And he was buried deep in a tomb. But although Friday came, Sunday was coming. And Jesus was resurrected from the grave and he now seats at the right hand of the Father. Do you see the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth that Christ went to love you? And if it's true that nothing, we said this together, nothing in heaven on earth, nothing with the principalities of powers and of darkness can ever separate us from this love. If God's love is infinite, that there is nothing in this world, not even you, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, the love of God. How rich and pure. How measureless and strong. If we with ink the ocean fill and we're the skies of parchment made, where every man on earth a scribe. And every stock, a pen by trade. Oh, to write the love of God would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, the love of God. How rich and pure. How measureless and strong. Oh, my prayer for you, church, is that you be built up in this love. My prayer for you, as I wonder what this church might look like when I come back from sabbatical. And you know I'm leaving for sabbatical the day after Easter, the day after Resurrection Sunday. My prayer is not that we'd be in a new building. Would I love to be in a new building? Yeah. No, my prayer is there would be a different type of building going on here. That you'd be so rooted, grounded in Christ's love. That these relationships here would be so built up that the world around you would know that you are Jesus' disciples, not because of what you know, but because of how you love. Why? Because we have been loved first. Oh, church, it's easy to forget this love like I forget those little communion cups here on Sundays. Thank you. Is it not so easy to forget this love? It's so easy to forget it. That's why our Savior, who we have to get this telescope on, not on our sins, not on our shame, not on our past, not on others, not on self, but get it on Jesus. 
Our Savior knew we'd be a forgetful bunch. He doesn't assume that we'll always remember the gospel, which is why we take this meal every time we come together. Then on the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks. And he says, this is my body and it's given for you. For you who trust and believe in Jesus, this meal is for you. If you not put your trust in Jesus, we ask you not to take this meal, but take Jesus instead, and we can prepare you at a later time to partake this meal. But my brothers and sisters, let us take and eat the bread that's been given for us. In the same way, Jesus took a cup of wine, and he told his disciples, who would often forget his love, that this is the cup of the new covenant and it's sealed with the shedding of my blood. This is what love looks like. Sacrificial love. A love that serves. A love that lays down his life for his friends. Oh, friends of Jesus, would you take and drink? Christ said, for as often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup. You're announcing my death until I return. We're announcing that Christ loved us to death. Amen?